0: Steve, I gotta tell you, I went to Climate Pledge Arena for the first time last night to watch the Kraken defeat the Nashville Predators.
1: By happenstance, it was my first time last night in Climate Pledge when it was open too, Todd.
0: You were there? It was a fantastic game. Boy, if you were gonna go to your first Kraken game, that was the one. They won three to two, it was super exciting. So Four,
1: four to three, oh. I'm a numbers guy, they won four to three, Todd. Oh,
0: Steve, you're right, you're right. It's, let's get this right. Understanding any subject requires knowing the numbers. That was one of Steve Ballmer's guiding principles as a business and technology leader, and it remains his mantra as founder of USA Facts, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that compiles and reports U.S. government data. Ballmer, the chairman of the LA Clippers and former Microsoft CEO, joins us on the GeekWire podcast this week to discuss the USA Facts State of the Union in Numbers report. We also discuss the trends he's watching in tech, the future of the pro sports experience in Seattle and beyond, and his philanthropic initiatives with his wife Connie through the Ballmer Group in areas including homelessness and education. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Steve Ballmer and I last spent time together when USA Facts partnered with GeekWire on the podcast Numbers Geek in 2018 and 2019 exploring the data behind many of the key issues facing the country. Of course, many of those issues have been upended in the time since. It was good to catch up with Steve and revisit some of these topics. Steve Ballmer, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Todd, real pleasure uh, to be back together again.
0: It's been a couple years, so I'd like to start just by getting a sense for what you've been up to. Of course, we've been reporting on the Balmer Group's philanthropic efforts in education and homelessness and economic mobility. And as we record this on Thursday, March 3rd, the Clippers are on a four-game winning streak, if I've calculated that correctly. You're building a new arena in Inglewood, California. USA Facts is still going strong, and we're going to talk about that coming up how are you doing and how have you been spending your time
1: well I'm doing I'm doing very well and I feel very fortunate for that it's been a tough uh, few years for a number of people you could see it in the numbers so between death and some of the other negative consequences long covid I feel fortunate uh, we haven't had any of those consequences and been fortunate enough financially obviously but I'm fortunate and in, in many ways it's been a Two years with more family, still work, plenty to do philanthropically, maybe more USA Facts. And we did restart our basketball season. So been busy, been busy with all things basketball as well.
0: So it's been about seven years nearly now since USA Facts was founded and about five years since its public launch or thereabouts. And this, of course, for people who have not followed your efforts is a nonpartisan nonprofit initiative. It arose out of your own efforts with your wife Connie to really understand the government's role in economic mobility and to inform and guide your own philanthropy. And you really wanted the numbers that you had when you were running Microsoft, but for the government, and that expanded into an effort to ground the national conversation in a common understanding of facts. So as a nation, as you look at this five years later, Are we getting closer or further away from that goal, from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I'd love to tell you we were closer. Uh, It makes good copy if we say we're farther away or closer. But the truth of the matter is, I'd say more similar than different. With the change of administration, the way numbers are talked about are a little bit different. But in point of fact, the use of numbers whether it's the interest in citizens in in that, which may be up actually marginally. That's not true. It is up because people were so interested in COVID. People were so interested in the numbers of COVID. And that is a good case where you can see a surge in interest and understanding, whether it's through charts and pictures or tables and numbers, people really did want to know what was going on. And so let me, let me call it that as progress, really, you know, in terms of, government use of information, I'm not sure that other than COVID, that that has surged in any meaningful way. Certainly in all the discussions of some of the things that, you know, the presidents wanted to do, there was a number discussion. There's no question, but the numbers were so incomplete, it was really hard to put together, you know, what was going on, what was really being proposed, what it really would buy us. So that's where I put you, Todd.
0: It was fascinating, to your point, Steve, watching the State of the Union. You did a briefing with media a couple of weeks ago that I got to tune in on, and one of the points that you made was that you can't just look at one year and get a full understanding. And there were multiple different examples of that in the State of the Union by President Biden this week. One of them was that he pointed out that the economy grew at a rate of 57 he said 5.7 last year, he meant 5.7%. And he pointed out that it was the strongest growth rate in 40 years, which was almost true. It's actually about 37 years if you look at the USA Facts numbers. But the important point was that that was after a decrease of 3.4% in 2020, the prior year. So the economy had a lot of ground to gain, like pent-up growth, if you will. So what can you do to get people to look at the long-term I kept thinking about Andrew Yang. Do you remember the Democratic presidential candidate Sure. who did the promise to have the PowerPoint State of the Union? And it felt like we needed that. It felt like we needed the USA Facts slides up next to what President Biden was showing. What are your thoughts on all of that?
1: Look, we live in a democratic system, which is very good. I love it. Uh, There's ways, I'm sure, to improve it. But one thing that is certainly true in a democratic system, politicians of both parties are there to sell. Selling does not involve necessarily a contextual representation. I'm not talking about people being untruthful. But when you really look at things, a politician's job is to sell what they've done as opposed to put it in context. So I wasn't surprised you know, in a way, that's why we started What where we started with USA Facts is to do what we call a 10K, the kind of document businesses file with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which are designed to make sure there's just nowhere to hide. you got to be complete. You've got to be contextual. You can't just be selling your company's shares or the SEC whacks you down. And so that we do need for our government government and people need to read it and have that context, politicians are not going to give it to us. So you hear the, the the 5.7, and you're right. If you don't look at the down 3.4 the year before, we did have a V recovery, a quick down and a quick up. That's great. We should be proud of that. But if you look at the lifestyles of people, you know they look more like the two-year number than the one-year number. The good news is, for example, Inflation-adjusted, wages grew. Wages actually grew about 2%, I I think, inflation-adjusted. Now, they grew 10.7% if you don't inflation-adjust. So what number number should we be talking about? You know, I think with all the discussion of inflation in the news, it's kind of interesting. We still had real wage growth.
0: This brings me back to a lot of the conversations that we had when we were doing the Numbers Geek podcast, and it's interesting because back then, a few years ago, Inflation was important to keep in mind, but clearly now it's critical to keep in mind when you talk about the difference between that 10% growth, including inflation, the 2% growth when you take inflation out of it. And that really, to me, speaks to just how much the economy is very dynamic right now. What are the other economic numbers that you're looking at? What are the things that you would point people to maybe your first two or three PowerPoint slides if you were delivering the State of
1: the Union? I would certainly point to a couple of things. I would point to inflation and wages. I think they're very important. I would point to government spending, which was massive, massive. We don't use words like that at USA Facts, but it was a very large increase from previous years in 20 and 21. And you can decide whether you think it bought enough recovery Uh, reasonable people can disagree. You could say, that's why we did have a V recovery. You could say, hey, look, we spent more than we needed to. We don't try to figure out causality, but it's an important thing. Given how tight people are talking about our supply chains and our labor market being, it's really interesting to look at the unemployment rate with the labor force participation rate. We have 1 million fewer people either working or looking for work, than we did two years ago. I'll go back to 2019. That's an interesting number. And it's not because there aren't jobs there, because the unemployment rate is back down to a level approaching what it was in 2019. People have simply dropped out of the labor force. Why? And I don't know. People will say, well, there aren't jobs, but we know there are jobs. So really drilling in on additional numbers Knowing what we know, drilling in additionally, I think is very important if we're going to understand the shape of the economy uh, potentially going forward. So I'd highlight I'd highlight that. I'd highlight the fact that tax revenues actually back up, you know, at the federal level and at the state level. In the state of Washington where we live, Todd, is running a surplus. And yet we're talking about a new tax. And I'm not going to comment on what what's the right policy or what we should be spending. People need to decide by themselves, but it's important context to have as we look at our numbers. And now, you know, in the last few weeks, I would highlight uh, the need to look at where we really are in terms of the Ukraine and Russia I learned yesterday there's a government database that shows what the mineral imports are by country. That's kind of important. I read that Boeing requires titanium in its landing gear. Okay, let's let's really dig into the numbers. It's not just, but it does include what are our troop presence look like? Where are our troops stationed? What's our foreign aid look like to Ukraine? There's a whole set of things to really dig into, to understand the potential ramifications around the world of this war.
0: Some of the numbers that USAFAX collects are related to defense spending. And it's interesting to note that defense spending decreased in 2021, and it was about 12% lower than its 2010 peak. And of course, the U.S. is not actively engaged in Ukraine. But one thing that I was thinking back to was, This is a deep cut, as they would say in the music business, Steve. The 2018 USA Facts Annual Report, I remember you noted at that time that the government was spending more on R&D, software, and electronics at that point than on aircraft, ships, vehicles, ammunition, and it just raises this fascinating topic now of cyber warfare and how the context for international conflicts has totally changed from... Being not just the physical world, but the digital world.
1: Yeah, it sure does. Uh, it sure does. I wish we could see the uh, the Russian uh, Russian government spending <laughs> by the numbers. I think that would be a pipe dream. But and I and I don't know where things will shake out. I am very glad, and I have a bit of perspective from my time, you know, at, at my company Microsoft on kind of how our government thinks about some of these things. And I think they're very sophisticated people who work for the US government. I think there's also very sophisticated people who work for the Russian government or are funded by the Russian government. I and mean, I have some understanding of that, and that's about all I should say, given, given the security cla- classification um, under which I received that information. But you take a look at that and you say, wow, where are we gonna get hit? When is that really gonna happen? our European allies get hit. Heck, even the Ukraine has certainly been attacked, but not with the success I might have expected by this stage in in the war. There was a nice piece, I was very proud of what Microsoft's doing in terms of helping with cyber defense and and, um, cyber detection. But maybe it's because we do have not only our government, but our private companies doing a good job. It was
0: fascinating to be reminded of just how much For lack of a better word intelligence microsoft has about what's going on in terms of cyber attacks they were able to detect even a few hours before the actual physical military campaign began an increase in attacks on ukrainian cyber assets which was fascinating this past week
1: i think it's great i think it's consistent with the mission of the company it's not an an attack Position. It's a detection and defend position. You know, if there's going to be cyber warfare, it should be conducted by governments, not by private companies.
0: Another issue that came up in the State of the Union by President Biden this past week was, and this made me think of you immediately because the Intel CEO was in the audience, and <laughs> President Biden pointed out that Intel is just waiting for this bipartisan bill to be signed into law to open up its, or to start construction on this very large fabrication facility, multiple facilities in Ohio. And this statistic that he cited in the context of that discussion was fascinating to me. He said, quote, we used to invest almost 2% of our GDP in research and development. We don't now. And another example of, okay, like, what does that mean? How long ago Did we invest 2%? And so, Steve, I hope you don't mind, but I asked your resident number cruncher, Richard Coffin, to look this up for me because I couldn't figure out the answer. Based on the numbers he found, it's been since the 1960s since the U.S. spent 2% of GDP on R&D in terms of federal spending.
1: Yeah, you have to be very precise are we talking about the U.S. government's spending on research and development as a pre- percent of GDP? Are we talking about private plus federal spending as a percentage of GDP? You know How much research is supposed to be done by the federal government and its contractors versus private industry? And I don't know that the government even reports on what's going on in, in private industry, but at least my sort of general feel just from what i read is we would look as a percentage of the economy from the private sector for an interesting increase is the percentage of gdp spent by private companies now i don't know the numbers i'm a numbers man so you know you, you can't you, you can't take this as gospel from me but i think that's the important way to 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 look at it now you can also say hey the federal government's doing what it should do and you know you can argue for more spending at the federal government layer for long-term R&D but again it's a number taken out of context and without context it means nothing to me other than somebody's trying to sell a package of <laughs> a package of research investment for whatever set of reasons
0: and to your point steve I know you like to say you're not an expert in causality. So what I'll do is I will link from the show notes on this episode to the USA facts pages that have the historical R and D spending. There's a specific definition to your point. You can define R and D in about a million different ways. <laughs> and, and I'll link to that plus the GDP trends. So folks can see that over time. And, and to your point, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to provide the facts. You're not trying to provide the conclusions.
1: Right. No, I, absolutely, and I, I'm not giving President Biden a harder time than it would any other politician. D or R, it's just you need context. I actually don't know off the top of my head whether the government even collects R and D numbers uh, for you know industry. It's hard to do. There's private companies. Definitions of R and D are kind of all over the map. You know, if you're doing a sustaining improvement in you know the Ford uh, Mustang an incremental improvement or an incremental improvement in Windows, it shows the same kind of R&D, and so really grokking and thinking about R&D is a a tricky one, but if you ask my, now this is my personal opinion, I'm causality, the key to solving almost every problem, whether it's real economic growth, whether it's climate issues, it's R&D, man. Productivity increases don't come from having more people. It's R&D and invention in the way work gets structured. And it's the productivity growth that lets us you know, live better, if you will. Uh, however, that's distributed to people by, by wealth. Without productivity increases, the world's issues are not going to get better.
0: Coming up, revisiting Steve Ballmer's legacy as Microsoft CEO. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. There's parallels in some respects to the investments that Microsoft made when you were there as CEO and prior in things like Microsoft Research. And I've been thinking, Steve, as this news about the metaverse has come out and Microsoft's been making acquisitions to bolster its Xbox business to lay the groundwork for the metaverse, and at the same time, Microsoft Azure and the cloud. You know, you got a little bit of a hard time from pundits when you left in terms of your legacy at Microsoft as people looked at the share price. And I know at the time you pointed to total return to shareholders and all that stuff. I should point out to folks, you're grinning as I'm saying this. Uh, Is it time for tech historians to go back and revise their outlook on your legacy as Microsoft CEO when you look at what Microsoft is doing now in the cloud and the metaverse?
1: Historians are historians. (laughs) You know, I I don't know about looking back as being all that helpful either way. You know, me, I feel good and that's all that matters to me. Uh, So what matters to other people is what matters to other people. I feel great leaving Microsoft in a strong financial position with fantastic people with a cloud business which is now developed nicely so many people missed the cloud IBM missed it Oracle missed it the transition Veritas missed it so so many people missed the transition to the cloud we could have done it better but I feel good about leaving you know that if you will in place whether it's the office business or the Azure business, and I also think Satya's done a fantastic job taking the company to the next level. Are there things I wish we had done differently? Of course, there are things I wish we had done differently. Are there things that undoubtedly Satya looks at and said, I wish I had done them differently? And of course, there are going to be such things. So, you know, it's the way of the world. Nobody will ever bat a thousand. And I, I feel very good and if somebody wrote something nice, that's nice. It's not going to make me feel any better. I feel really good. I know
0: people listening to this will be asking, why isn't that guy bringing up Nokia and Aquanov and all that stuff?
1: Yeah, no, like, like I said, you know, Aquanov was a bad acquisition and I made it. Okay. Skype was a good acquisition that somehow the company didn't sustain. I feel good about the acquisition. And I don't know why Zoom has the position Zoom has. Skype should have inherited that position. Okay. I, I think that, that I don't feel like that's on my watch. That was a very good acquisition. Nokia is sort of in between. I made the acquisition at the request of our board because I had already decided I was going to transition and the company didn't choose to do anything with it. And that may have been the right call. I'm not. I'm not going to, you know, provide doubt. But it was the call for the next. Now the board probably should have managed that transition better. That's a whole different story. But there's some I blew, uh, for sure. There's some I think you know next generation could have done better. And there's some that who knows. And I think you know, they've made a number of good acquisitions. You know, when they bought LinkedIn, I thought they spent too much. And boy, do I look stupid on that. I tell Satya, I, yes, I'm in awe. That was a fantastic acquisition. They haven't made any complete duds. In fact, I know of no duds that they have made. That doesn't mean they haven't made some because there's plenty of acquisitions I don't focus in on. Somebody was telling me yesterday about an acquisition they made for four or $500 million. And I didn't even know about it. <laughs> and I do pay a little bit of attention to the company, since you know it's a it's a whole different world. And I think they're doing right now. I think they're doing a great job uh, with that. I think the Activision acquisition is great idea. We had looked at it a number of times, and they they finally got it, if you will, at a at a good price, in my opinion. You know, I know they still have to go right through regulatory approval. But you know, LinkedIn, large acquisition, good deal. This one should be a good deal. So I think they're doing a, a great job on that.
0: Steve, I should point out, you're still a significant shareholder. Am I right?
1: You're right. Okay. believe I'd be the largest single shareholder, yeah.
0: Yeah, individually. What are the key trends that you're watching in tech broadly, beyond Microsoft even? Are there things, I know you've, for example been looking at augmented reality and you've been focusing on that in part because of basketball broadcasts and some things you've been doing there with court vision, a product that you've come out with, with the Clippers. What are you watching generally in terms of tech trends and and what do you expect to be most relevant in the, the next few years?
1: Yeah, I don't think the full potential of uh, AI has played out yet. You know, the names change all the time you know as artificial intelligence became machine learning i don't know if it what people call it my my new view of tech now that i've been out for a while is the concepts mostly say the same the names change and some of the specifics of the way things come together our tech team at USA Facts was telling me now about something coming out, what do they call it? Web assembly or something like that, where people are back writing assembler code, <laughs> even in the web context. You know, old ideas don't die. They just get reborn into modern forms. And, you know, AI is being reborn into a modern form, whether it's the discussion of the metaverse or or some of the other things that are going on, but the amount of unfulfilled potential for those techniques to really help improve people's lives or really help us uh, solve, you know, sort of key problems, whether they're problems of climate. There's still a big role for computers being able to learn and solve problems to advance our society. And I watch for that. And if you ask me, do I think the world has evolved? Absolutely. Do I think things have really achieved their promise? I hope not, because I think there's a whole lot more promise there. You know, the metaverse thing, I get it. I'm not quite sure that anybody's found a form of it that will blow your socks off. And the question is, will people, and on what time frame, we will be able to do amazing things in terms of the way people experience sports using approaches that I wouldn't have called the metaverse a year and a half ago but I think now I'm supposed to call the metaverse. <laughs> you know, I probably would have called it augmented reality uh, or a form of virtual reality. So you'll be able to do amazing things. That's not going to it's not a general purpose enough application to completely transform part of the world and somebody is going to find that application as opposed to these more narrow things.
0: I'm reading a great book right now called Stolen Focus. It's by an author named Johan Hari, and it's all about how the shift to social media and constant alerts and distractions are taking away our ability to think deeply. It strikes me that you have an interesting insight into this now through USA Facts, putting out this long-form report, the 10K, the annual report. And yet I could sense, at least, that there was also this shift a few years ago toward more bite-sized data on social media to get people's attention. What are your observations on that and this trend, the impact of social media and alerts and technology on our ability to think deeply?
1: Yeah, these are just my personal speculation. It's not grounded in the reality of working in a tech company or in any set of numbers. Social media is a little bit, you know, you used to talk about the words, at least in the tech business, how interrupt driven are you? Well, how did operating systems handle interrupts, blah, 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 it's a very important topic in the day, so to speak. And the question is, how interrupt driven are our lives? You know, when I was CEO, I opted to spend my time in a way that gave me more interrupts than other CEOs did customer crises, problems, government crises, those are interrupts. You have to stop and then context switch quickly. And you could say, okay, how much context switching do we do? The more context switching we do, the less able we are to go deep, to consume long form content as an example. And the world is becoming a lot more interrupt driven would be my (laughs) uh, observation. I think that's good for some things and yet, If you really want to contemplate, really want to understand something, we need to, you know, people need to decide to protect that amount of time in their lives too. I can't say I'm great, I can't say that. And I do check my email probably more frequently than I should, although as retired man, I get a lot less email. And, you know, I will say, you know, my number one news source is Twitter not in the sense of the individual tweets, but for me, Twitter's like a clipping service for longer forum articles. Now, I assume the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal tweet out the things that are most important. So instead of necessarily reading the whole paper, I will often pick and choose articles that way. Same thing on sports. If you want to know who's been traded before the trade deadline, you just kind of watch Twitter. It's the the best way to go. So I, I remain somewhat interrupt driven, but now that I am not working full- time, I get more time also for long-term uh, you know sort of longer, quieter points of understanding and reflection. One thing I'd really like to know, which I just don't know by the numbers, it's what's happened with book readership uh, since the start of the pandemic because there was a flip, a little bit in terms of how interrupt-driven people's lives were. Some people would say more so because of the invasiveness of you know Microsoft Teams and Zoom. Some people would say, hey, actually my life was less interrupt-driven. I could more schedule my own life. And book readership is some kind of proxy for that. There are people who read books and people who don't. Who don't. And then there's what you might call the swing voter of long-form readership. But it would give us some, some, some better understanding of really what the impact has been of the interrupts that come from social media.
0: Next up, the future of retail and live sports.
1: This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part
0: by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. And by the way, one of the pieces of news this week is Amazon is closing its physical bookstores after, you know, five, six, seven years. So perhaps that's part of the trend, although I think that's more about their own business.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably more about their own business. I, I have become more of a book reader and almost everything is, you know, purchased is from the Kindle store from Amazon. And they're not closing what I consider to be some of their most interesting stuff from a retail perspective which is what they're trying to do with their just walk out technology. I got to get down to the Amazon Fresh store in Factoria. Uh, It's a whole, whole new sort of retail concept. And certainly as we are designing our new arena, one of the questions is how much can we make it like a living room experience? Do you have the leg room? How easy it is to get in and out of the bathroom. Can you just run and grab something and get back to your chair like you'd run to your refrigerator without the friction of checkout and blah, blah, blah. So we're looking hard at, you know, not Amazon and other people's technologies for this. Uh, And I know they're not getting out of that business.
0: Steve, I got to tell you, by coincidence, I went to Climate Pledge Arena for the first time last night to watch the Kraken. Uh, defeat the Nashville Predators, I believe they are. I'm not much of a hockey guy, so forgive me if I got that wrong.
1: Well, by, by happenstance, I also was in Operational. I'd been there once before we before Climate Pledge opened, but it was my first time last night in Climate Pledge when it was open too, Todd. You were there? Keep going with your story. I was in there for the first time also watching them beat the Predators.
0: Okay, so it was a fantastic game. Boy, if you were gonna go to your first Kraken game, that was the one. They won three to two. It was super exciting. So four
1: four to three, I'm a numbers guy. They won four to three, Todd.
0: Steve, you're right. You're right. Let's get this right. Common understanding of the numbers. Okay. So long ago in reporting a story, I had scanned my palm into the Amazon go store. So guess what? I walked into climate pledge. They had the palm scanner, Steve, they recognized my palm. They might, You're rubbing your hands. I wish we had this on video. You're, you're delighting in what I'm telling you. I was like, I was fascinated. I was creeped out, you know, like totally different venue, totally different store. And Amazon recognized my palm and I didn't even have to pull out my credit card. I grabbed my popcorn and I walked back to my seat,
1: which is what we want to do in our new arena. We want to use the fact that palms have been registered. We want to enregister our fans. As soon as you know you've got somebody's palm, you know, we can give our best customers, for example, discounts on food and other other items. I mean, there's a lot of cool things that we can do with, uh, at Amazon, they call it their Just Walk Out technology. And there are some other vendors in that, that business. But that's the kind of experience I think you should have. Get up, grab what you need, and get right back to your seat.
0: Okay, I've got to ask you. I, you know, Hockey's okay. Hockey's okay. But I'm a basketball guy. I'm a basketball guy, Steve. I play. I watch. I love the game. Obviously, you are chairman of the LA Clippers. You're part of the, the ownership network in the NBA. So I, I people are going to kill me if I don't ask you. How long is it going to be until I can watch the Sonics in that arena? Do you have a sense for that?
1: You know, that's really a discussion to take <laughs> up with co- the commissioner.
0: Okay, I uh, you get you know,
1: your... I'm, I'm rooting for a team in Seattle. Yeah. I'd love to see uh, our team staying in L.A. Yeah, For me, it's got two nice... We're, we live here, but I get to get to warm weather in the winter, and L.A. is a great place to recruit free agents, and we're building our arena, so we're ensconced in L.A., but I'd love to see Seattle have a team, and I don't know, I have a generally good feeling from things the commissioner has said publicly, that we'll get that. We'll get the Sonics back here at, at some point. Yeah, I have a generally good good feeling about that. You know, it'd be good to give old Climate Pledge a, a basketball workout at some point, you know, when the storms start. And, you know, to really see what it would look like in the basketball setting will be important, I think, it was hard for me to visualize. I thought the building's fantastic. The energy in there last night seemed great. I'm not a regular hockey goer, but it really seemed good to me. But I was trying to envision what it would look like with this small little cord in it instead of that big old hockey rink. And I'm sure it'll all still be great. But I know they've thought about it. Really got to look at it.
0: Steve, I'm glad you mentioned the storm. That's really important. I'm a big storm fan as well. I'm thrilled that Sue Bird is coming back to the storm and it's important to point out there will be basketball played in climate pledge arena long before the NBA shows up. The WNBA is a wonderful game to watch. I I really enjoy it. So I'm glad you brought that up.
1: I'm headed tonight to watch our Clipper team play the Lakers and my partner in crime, Lisa Brummel from the storm owner of the storm and I are going together. She and I have a deal. We do a home and home. I go to a storm game with her. She comes to a clips game with me. It's clips time, and I'll be be glad when they're out Everett next year and back in in Seattle at Climate Pledge.
0: Steve, I know one of the reasons that you founded USA Facts was to inform your philanthropy, the Balmer Group, which you work on with your wife, Connie, and you just made, uh, through the Balmer Group, a major philanthropic donation to the University of Oregon. Can you talk about what you were hoping to accomplish through that?
1: University of Oregon is my wife, Connie's alma mater. She's been on the board, so we have a deep relationship there. And we care a lot about investment in behavioral health support for kids. People talk about mental health and behavioral health, really helping kids work on those issues when they're young so they don't develop into as significant issues in adulthood, we think is, is pretty important. And there's a shortage of workforce to go into that field. There's sort of a classic there's not enough supply therefore we haven't tested the amount of demand that is how much particularly can school districts come up to fund this stuff so what we've done is fund faculty uh, research clinical faculty that will really work with kids uh, and then scholarships for kids in the who want to get into the field you know the university is now working with the school districts and the state to get proper certification that for somebody with a bachelor's degree to work with children in behavioral health field it's a really exciting thing for us we've done a little bit of this also at the university of washington up here in seattle we think it's really really important thing Uh, there's a new campus as part of that university of oregon has a satellite in portland and uh that's where the children behavioral health institute will be anchored and for us you know it was For anybody, it's a big, big, big uh, number, but we endowed a bunch of this stuff at University of Oregon. It's the biggest investment we've made. You also
0: recently were in the news for leading an investment by a variety of groups in the issue of homelessness in downtown Seattle. Why was that an important issue for you and Connie to take part in?
1: Yeah, I mean, to some degree, it has to do with our core mission at Balmer Group, which is to focus in on economic mobility, but I'd say almost in larger measures, we wanna contribute here in our home city. And there clearly, as there are many places, there's a homelessness problem here. The only way we think that'll really have a chance to be addressed is by collaboration across various government entities, collaboration with not-for-profits, with business, uh, with developers. It's gonna take a, a broad but concerted effort. And the fact that for what looked to us the first time, people were signed up to the notion of collaborating and signed up to the notion of measurement. We gotta not just talk about homelessness, that I think the thing is called partnership for zero. That means we gotta, if you wanna get to zero, you gotta kinda know your numbers. And you know, you know me as well on this stuff as anybody, Todd, I'm a numbers man and measurement is important. And I was excited to see city, county, not-for-profits focused on a measuring for results. Uh, in this area. Connie really and our uh, Washington State team led by a, a woman named Andy Smith focused in on this, but I'm really excited about it. Steve
0: Ballmer, it's been great to talk with you. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Todd, thank you very much.
0: Steve Ballmer is the founder of USA Facts, chairman of the LA Clippers, and the former CEO of Microsoft. See usafacts.org for the full State of the Union in Numbers Report, and listen to the full archive of Numbers Geek episodes at geekwire.com slash numbersgeek. Thank you for listening. See the show notes for related links, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to geekwire.com slash podcast for more. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Kurt Milton produces and edits the show. Our music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. We will be back next week with a new
1: episode of the GeekWire podcast.